Welcome to The Jam Pact, an independent podcast inspired by the campaigns of the WI. In this episode, I'm talking to Emma Reevey, the CEO of the Trussell Trust. The Trussell Trust supports a network of food banks around the UK and researches into the causes of poverty. In an article in The Guardian, Emma said that she has the best job in the world and that it shouldn't exist. I began by asking her why. Oh, well, can I start just by saying thanks so much for having me here this evening. I was really looking forward to being here. It's lovely to see you all. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's something I feel every single day. So if if you walk into one of our food banks and see our volunteers, I, I, I've said this many times before, but it, it bears repeating, I think. You experience this incredible, what I call radical welcome which is like I'm walking in they don't know me necessarily from Adam uh, and yet what they're exuding is this welcome that they want anyone who's having to come through the doors of a food bank to feel and it's just as intoxicating it's amazing to feel that kind of love and warmth coming at you and then you see people just working tirelessly of all ages sorting tins loading up cars in supermarkets I remember seeing this this group of volunteers load up their cars and like watch the suspension of the car drop to the point it was almost dragging along the road and they're like doing this through in the evenings during the day uh, just being with the most extraordinary people I've ever been with with our volunteers makes this like the best job I've ever had and it blows my mind on a on a daily basis but then when you see somebody having to come through the door who's had to, to access a food bank, somebody who's find themselves in a situation where they simply don't have enough money to put food on the tables for themselves or, or for their families, um, you're like horrified. Like the horror doesn't ever wear off at the fact that in the fifth richest country in the world, we are mass distributing food aid to people who can't afford to feed themselves. And so, yeah. For me, it's the, the best job in many ways, but also just awful that it has to exist. It shouldn't have to. It's, it's interesting you use the word horror because a lot of people think think words like sad, which is quite passive, whereas horror, you know, if you're horrified by something, that, that should be quite motivating. And yet, as a society, we do seem to be quite passive. I, I, think, I think that, I would have said that that was more true until this last 18 months, actually. Uh, and and people, people in our communities have really renewed and restored my faith in um, our capacity to meet extraordinary difficulty with compassion. Uh, and I think people were horrified at the idea that anyone wouldn't have food. And I think where people haven't necessarily known how many people have been coming to food banks for years, and um, all of a sudden we all had a little sense of what food insecurity might feel like when there was a worry that wouldn't be food on the supermarket shelves for us to buy and how were we going to get it and what if we were in isolation and couldn't get out we all had a little taste of it and I think we all immediately on experiencing that ourselves it, it brought out this wave of compassion in the general public and and people stepped forward and said what can I do to help how can I stop my neighbour not having enough money for food? And what, what can I do to get them food? Um, and I think that, that that's really restored my, my sense of hope. However, I have a fear that as we open up and some of us return to more normal lives and get to go back to work and whatever, that we will forget 
that for the last five years, food bank use in the UK has increased by 128%. Yes, it got worse last year, but it's not a new thing. Um, food bank needs has been increasing year on year, way before the pandemic. And so there are many, many families who can't afford to put food on, on their table. And this will continue on, even as many of us go back to work. One of the things I noticed when I was looking things up, um, you know, ahead of talking to you was how far back that this has been in the media. And I did wonder how you how you felt about that and where you see this story going. It's a great question. And it's funny how kind of time messes with your mind. So I have a 12 year old and a 14 year old boys um, and they've never lived in the UK that didn't have a network of food banks distributing emergency food aid. For them, food bank is a word they know, they see round about them, not just because their mum works for the food banks, but because that's that's they they do their harvest collections for the food bank in school. They do there's lots of it's just there, it's normalized for them. But on the other hand, when we think about food banks, that can cause us to think, well, this will never be solved. There's always been food banks. We're always going to need food banks. And yet 10 years ago, food banks in our network distributed just 60,000 emergency food parcels, whereas last year, 2.5 million. So actually, it's a very new phenomenon, this mass distribution of food aid on this scale where that number of people are having to access emergency food to get by. Uh, and, and therefore, something has changed in this last 10 years. And how do we change that back? Or how do we identify what's gone wrong and undo that? Because we don't need to be in a situation where food banks are normal. We, we have to fight against the possibility of being in a situation where food banks are normal. Because no matter how incredible the volunteers are, how radical that welcome, how absolutely crucial that food might be for somebody in that moment, at the very best, a food bank is a sticking plaster. It doesn't support a mum trying to sort out her electricity bill to keep the heating on. It still leaves people with situations where they're choosing between food and heat, where they're not sure about being able to cover the costs of their housing in a particular Food can't solve any of that. And the reason people are coming to food banks is not because of a lack of access to food, but because they can't afford essentials. And food is only one of those. So we have to fight the normalization of food banks because it is not a solution. It is simply a, a, an emergency intervention on a symptom rather than treating the problem, which is poverty. Why do you think that they have become normalised? Well, I think in part because the need has increased so exponentially, so they're just more present. But I also think there's an element to which um, it brings together that desire of somebody to help in a tangible way that they can do something about with a need that's that's present and it happens locally so local people donate food locally that goes to local people so it it fills a desire in us to respond and we see that across the UK our, our food banks are run by local people local volunteers supporting people in their communities but the question we have to be asking ourselves is and not, not just what can I do to support my local food bank, but why in my community is there a food bank? Why, why does this exist? What is going on 
that in my community there's a food bank and, and let me tell you food banks are not just in those areas of the country that might spring to mind those big urban areas where we might think um, poverty exists they happen in some of they, they exist in some of the most affluent communities in our country and so there's a hidden issue of some people falling through the safety net of our country and being caught by by food banks and um, when they've when they've fallen right the way through and we have to be now just because it's it's not easy running a food bank network but because it's an easy easy to conceive of solution it's possible that we we focus our attentions on that when really what we need to be asking ourselves is what is the real problem and the real problem is not hunger that is just a symptom of the problem the real problem is people not having enough money and therefore the response shouldn't be food the response should be ensuring that everyone has enough money for the essentials yeah, I mean, it's maybe this is a bit cynical, but I almost feel like um, policymakers have manipulated people's desire to help and to have that tangible impact on their community and to stop that question of, of why, um, you know, because it does feel good to help. And, you know, our, our WA gives the food bank and always feels very good, but there's always that question in the back of a lot of our minds, you know, when I talk to people about it is should we be collecting this like is is this the right thing to do like should we be doing something else rather than just collecting and giving and collecting and giving yeah it's it's a real problem and I think when you when you think about it kind of conceptually you can have an ideological debate around whether there should be a third sector response over a state intervention um, and and there's there's arguments on on both sides. What what I find in kind of reality when you're confronted with somebody potentially coming to the door of your community centre who doesn't have enough money to buy food, um, it that argument comes down into the micro, and you're thinking you're faced with someone in front of you. And at that point, I think the values of Trussell Trust are always in in my mind. So our values are um, compassion, justice dignity and community and there's real tension between those values so if you find somebody in front of you who is in dire need of emergency food your initial response is compassion which is you 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 want to respond so so people provide food for their neighbors people provide food for people in their community the justice value makes you question <laughs> should we be doing that or are we somehow or another holding up uh, a system that is failing our citizens. And I think you you could say, well, I won't be compassionate in that situation in order to uphold justice, but actually the tension has to look through the two things. We need to find a just response, which is where we, we lobby and we campaign for a better system. But in the meantime, <clears throat> we provide compassion, which is to respond to somebody in need. And it's similar with the tension between community and dignity. There's a community response, which is just amazing about food banks, people coming together to support one another. But we have to then ask our question around, how is that upholding someone's dignity? Because it, there's much greater dignity in having the money in your pocket to be able to go and decide what food is best for your kid and whether it's best to have a big meal or cover the costs of my heating tonight or to juggle your personal expenses and to have enough money to make that work. And so even though it feels good to give a community response, we have to hold that intention with how are we hold, upholding one another's dignity in that situation? And that I think somehow or another, 
food bank sits somewhere in the middle of that seeking not to prop up a system that's not working but also caring for the person in front of us on any given day so i have some statistics here which um, we talked a little bit about before everyone came on and um, I think they're really important just to give some context to what we're actually talking about. Um, These statistics come from the Trussell Trust. They did a report called The State of Hunger. So these are just a a few of them. So disability was exceedingly common among households referred to food banks in the Trussell Trust network. Two in three households referred to a food bank in early 2020 included one or more disabled people, um, which means that disabled people are more than three times as vulnerable to poverty than the general population. 95% of people referred to food banks are destitute, meaning that they cannot afford to buy essentials. Um, So things to eat, stay warm and dry, and they can't keep clean because they don't have the money to keep clean. Um, Income of food bank users, on average, they have around 13% of the national average income. So uh, most people's income would be 87% higher than the people referred to a food bank, which is just, you know, imagine losing 87% of your income. Like, what what would you do? And finally, 320,000 children use food banks prior to covid this rose by 5% after COVID-19 and this has stayed high as kids, you know, continue to not be able to go to school. And this was something actually I was thinking about, you know, the, the impact that long COVID will have on food banks and poverty and hunger. Um, and if there is anything being done by that, I am disabled. So I have quite an insight on how disability, it doesn't just affect individuals, but it affects whole families. So if you are a parent with a child who is disabled, you're more likely to, um, you know, become impoverished as the parent. If you have a sibling, a parent and so on, you're more likely to be in poverty. If your partner becomes disabled, you're both more likely to be in poverty. Yeah, I think Rosa and I were speaking a little bit just before we came on to the podcast and I was saying the statistic that keeps me up most of a night is that 62% of people who are coming to food banks have a disability. And that's just wrong. So three times more than um, the number of people in the working age population who have a disability. That's a ridiculous statistic. Uh, and I think what I, what I have experienced of our society is that we don't think that that is right. Uh, so I'm not sure everyone knows that statistic around food bank use but it's also something we can do something about we know um, that if somebody has a disability the barriers and the challenges to getting into the workplace are significantly harder we know it's harder as well for somebody with a disability to be able to stay in employment uh, and therefore their um, their need to be able to access a functioning social security system a social security system that holds them during that period of time out of destitution is is really essential and is what we would expect I think for one another from our social security system and it's not happening at the moment too many people with disabilities are are falling through that safety net and finding themselves 
having to turn to a food bank for emergency food aid. That's that's wrong. I think there's a, a lot that is caused by these expectations. You know, people expect that things are there that aren't there. And so they're not really sure why they should be put in place or reinforced because the assumption is, is that we have them already and that they work. Uh, absolutely they, that we we talk about that we, we know that the average and this actually responds to a question that Morag has posted in the chat and she asks what what I say to people who say that people who are coming to food banks are there because they've spent their money on on things that are, are not essentials um, uh, and what I know from our research that we've done with Harriet Watt University into um, through qualitative interviews with people at food banks and quantitative research into the reasons why people are at food banks is that the average household income household income of somebody at food bank is just 50 pounds a week after rent to cover all other costs electricity heating gas food council tax um, and that level of income is the equivalent of 27 percent of somebody working 40 hours a week on minimum wage. That's the, that's the level of money. That's the level of money that the benefits are equivalent to um, for a single person in the UK. I think we often have no idea how little money is made available to somebody when they move on to our social security system. During the pandemic, the government did an extraordinary thing by putting in place the furlough scheme, extraordinary. And so people were struggling as they saw their incomes drop to 80% of what it was before. It was about, can you, if, we, if any of us can imagine losing 20% of our income, that's a massive income shock. But imagine losing almost 90%. <laughs> if you can imagine losing that level of your income. And, and I think the government knew that people wouldn't cope with that level, with moving on to social security as opposed to being held in the furlough scheme, hence the furlough scheme was brought out. But for six million people, three, the number of people on universal credit doubled by three million um, during the pandemic. They, they did see that drop, that dramatic drop in income. And, and it's very hard to imagine how one gets by on that little income. We also saw during the pandemic, there was an increase of 20 pounds a week to universal credit. That ends in October. So the government will take away 20 pounds a week from people's benefits um, from October, which is the largest drop largest cut in benefits working age benefits since uh, world war ii it's an extraordinary cut it will see many many more families finding themselves needing to rely on food banks we did some research um, during the pandemic about what the 20 pound uplift had meant to people and 200,000 families have told us that it is, has been the thing that has prevented them having to rely on emergency food aid and that the loss of that £20 will see 200,000 more families turning to food banks to get by. That's, that's a, a really worrying and distressing statistic. It, it is really hard to, hard to imagine. And the, the justifications given for this um, cut, can you, can you talk us through like why people, why, why, why the government is arguing about doing this and how we can argue against it. So, so the argument is it was a, a pandemic related temporary intervention. And prior to the pandemic, though, as I've said, there was increases year on year in the number of people coming to food banks and the 
the main reason people give for why they're coming to food banks is insufficiency of income through benefits. So there was an issue. We've been speaking to government before the pandemic about the fact we needed to increase working age benefits, which had just undergone a four year freeze where the cost of living went up, but the, the value of benefits effectively went down in, in real terms. Um, and so the £20 uplift the government brought in right at the beginning of the pandemic, but they are treating it as a temporary uplift. And so there will be a cliff edge in October where it'll just be taken away immediately. Um, and what, what we're saying is we need to keep the lifeline during this time. This is, this is not the time to take away over a £1,000 out of um, people's pockets each year. Uh, when people are really struggling, we've seen this unprecedented level of people coming to food banks during the pandemic with the £20 uplift in place. So to take it away um, at this point, at the same time, as with the end of furlough coming at exactly the same time, we're likely to see more people um, losing their jobs and having to rely on our social security system. And they're going to be coming onto a system that is £20 a week less generous than, than it was um, before furlough ended. So it's really worrying um, that the number of people that that's going to affect. What's extraordinary is the level of cross-party concern about this intervention. So we saw a letter going from six former Conservative Work and Pension Secretaries calling for the government not to make this cut. There is, this is not a, this is not a partisan issue. People on all sides of the political spectrum say, don't do this, this is not the right time. We need to keep that lifeline in place, help keep people afloat during what's going to be ongoingly a very challenging period for people particularly those on the lowest incomes and this is not the time to, to make that cut. I mean, one, one of the things I, I said to you before everyone came on was that when I was looking up poverty and reading, reading about uh, your work about the Trussell Trust and what you all do it sounds like a very depressing thing to sit, sit down and read about but actually it, there is so much potential for change and potential that we can act on quite quickly. And I think that there would be quite a lot of consensus for if people understood what these problems were. I, I, I agree. And I think that consensus is building and building. People have, like, it was extraordinary during the pandemic how much we were willing to change the way we live, the way we work, the way we care for one another in order to protect one another. Like we've, we've made extraordinary changes to our lives and our motivation for that was to protect one another. Uh, and I think we can build on that. We don't want to see one another facing destitution. We don't want to see one another having our kids going into school, not having a breakfast. We don't want to see one another having to move out of our accommodation because we haven't been able to cover the cost of accommodation as well as food for our families. We don't want that um, for, for one another. And that's not that's not one party or another. There are that's that's across the political spectrum. And so we just need to galvanize more support. Uh, and the government, the government have some challenging times ahead. They've got massive costs that they've incurred as a result of the pandemic and that's something we're going to have to share across society but what we need to be making sure we advocate for is that that burden is not felt disproportionately um, by those on the, the lowest incomes we need to look at how we can find a way of getting by and moving forward and moving out of the pandemic but without 
forcing more and more people into experiencing destitution. So we need to, to speak out about that and, and speak to the government and ask them not to take away this lifeline from people and, and to make a plan. We know what's driving people to food banks. We know what policy changes could be made that would prevent that from happening. That's why our vision as an organisation is to end the need for food banks, not reduce it, not make food banks nicer or um, expand them further across the country, end them. Let's be reading about food banks in our history books rather than our national newspapers. It's, it's entirely possible to do that. And our call on government is end the need, make a plan and implement it. And let's not just take as normal that when people are in crisis, we provide food aid in our country. A lot of what you said, it, it kind of, there's this theme of coming together. You know, we come together through COVID and we can come together to support communities and to su support food banks and individuals. How big of a, of a role does isolation play in poverty? I think this is the one of the most insidious and evil parts of of poverty so if you're in a situation like the, this the thing i often comment on is when you're measuring food insecurity and, and you guys at wi helped support the measurement of food insecurity through through your campaigning which is incredible but when one of the ways in which you measure is you ask questions um, about um, people's level of food security and one of those questions is can you extend hospitality are you able to have somebody round for tea? That's such an interesting question to ask. It's, 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 it's so insightful because the reality is if you, if you can't invite somebody round, often then you can't be invited round. So if you, have, if you can't afford to invite somebody round, often that means you won't be invited round. And what we see is that poverty leads to that fragmentation of informal support, fragmentation of family. If you've had to borrow money off your mum to feed your kids and you're not in a position to pay that back, it makes it harder to go see your mum. And so you get pushed into a much more isolated situation. And that, that's awful that as a byproduct of not having enough money, we're stripped yet again of something else, which is that love and support that we need from, from our community and from our family. And that pushing that is so linked to shame as well. And that the shame of the poverty and the shame of the isolation and that isolation feeds even more into the shame. And the stress of struggling financially is extraordinary we've seen particularly during covid but even before covid the number of people um, here at food banks who are struggling with their mental health and a struggle with the mental health can make it harder to work but having uh, not being able to work can increase mental ill health and it becomes just this vicious vicious cycle um, and isolation and loneliness is a is a, an awful part of that and this this kind of thing um so in a previous episode um of the podcast i've talked to someone from um uh, wish which is a women's mental health charity and we talked about how mental health is a social justice issue you know it's not just a personal health issue it's a social justice issue and when you um think about things like poverty and hunger it's obvious that mental health and, and physical health as well, um, but mental health in particular 
isn't just about what's going on in your own mind and um you know just simply having or getting a disorder like we sort of talk about anxiety as you you just kind of get it <laughs> but actually you know some sometimes there are very real external factors and you know wh- whether it's worrying about not having money for food or actually not having eaten that that's massive huge and I think as well for parents worrying you you, you don't have money to get your kids food as well like the, the number of people I've spoken to who have come to food bank and they'll say things like say things like um don't worry about me if I could just get some food for my kids or um, when you when you talk a little bit further they say they've been going for quite a long time without food but it was when they didn't have food for their kids that they stepped up because there's a, a huge amount of shame and indignity at coming across the threshold of a food bank it's not something that, that that we feel for for somebody coming in but that's what people feel you see people going around the car park several times and the worst situations when they do that and they they go away they don't come in and mm. um, that that whole that whole process is is deeply taxing mentally and emotionally for somebody. I think that is uh, an area where WIs could really help with the the isolation and just having that bit of human contact. And a lot of our WIs have subgroups. um, And if you had a group where you could open it to the community and link with a food bank and say, this is purely social, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll bring tea and cakes and all that, but, the focus is um talking or like you know we'll we'll teach a craft or anything just to interact I mean that is that is so valuable it's so powerful the power of a cup of tea of sharing a cup of tea as well so it's sitting and having a cup of tea with someone like I see it every time I walk into one of our food banks it is it's something that that, that we're all in the business of doing of that making a cup of tea and sitting down and, and sharing that with with somebody is people will talk about that when they came to the food bank it was amazing to get food but actually what what I hear more often than that is people talking about renewed hope mm-hmm. and that's come from just having had some space to sit have a cup of tea and, and share with somebody what's going on and maybe through talking about it get some support for um, just some solidarity in that dark moment um, and I think that's incredible and so the work that you do and the work that volunteers and food banks do together I think it's the fabric of who we want to be as a community uh, people who make a cup of tea for someone and sit and, and, and have a chat over a cup of tea. What, what do you think of hope as your position as the CEO and you've had all this experience with people in such, you know, hardship? Like what have you come to think of hope as? I think it's really changed in the last year and a half. I have, I have extraordinary levels of hope because like, I, was, I heard this story about a woman um, this week who... Um, one of our food banks told me about a lady they'd been supporting and she um, was really at the end of her tether and she had a disabled child and she, um, she was single parent and 
um, her partner had left her quite some time before and she was just really struggling to make ends meet and was, was at the food bank. And a citizen's advice advisor that worked in our food bank worked with her and managed to secure seven years back pay of disability living alone. Wow. A child. Um, the woman's first response was, this is amazing. I'm going to be able to buy food to bring to the food bank and I can come back to volunteer. That's, oh, I guess it makes me a bit weepy just thinking. <laughs> that for me is my hope. When we reach out to one another, when we consider what we would want from one, for, for one another, for the people we love, what would we want to extend that to other people? And mm -hmm. um, people are extraordinary in their response. You can, that, that, that's such hope. And again, that's that's the coming together aspect of what you do. It is it's not about food, and in a way, it's not about money either. It's about how we as people come together as societies, um, and how do we support each other? I've, I found this um, interesting um, tweet actually the other day. It just sort of popped up, um, and the the person said. Um, um, resilience is not achieved in isolation and I, I wrote it down to, to bring up today because I thought I'm sure this is going to come up and it'll be useful but I thought that was so interesting because we often think about um, I think most of us when we're going through a hard time or if you think about um, even like a you know a fictional character going through a hard time you think what they they need is a level of stoicism and, and you know some some power of endurance as well keep going but that can be really isolating and the what, what they actually need is the softness to break that isolation you know you, you need rather than toughness the ability to melt a bit and to let other people in and to know that they will be there for you and I think the government at the moment the message is is that people need to be tougher and, you know, we, we've been told very recently we shouldn't cower. You know, we need to take things on the chin. Um, but actually, no one can get through this alone. It's, I mean, that, that is the absolute message of COVID, really, is how connected we are. Like someone in China possibly touched a bat. I don't know. But everyone who has got COVID since has been in contact with someone who's been in contact with someone who's been, and, and so on, all the way back to that person you know where they think it originated from I mean that is how connected we are there's a chain and it's COVID has just highlighted how much in contact we are in that physical way but also economically you know where we put our value and how isolated do we make people economically or how connected do we make them economically well, I think we're definitely built for community. <laughs> There's something in us. Um, even though I'm like, there's nothing like a good night in front of Netflix for me or quiet bath. I think we, we to choose to have some time on our own is, is very different from the fact that we have an innate need to be part of community. And we, we know from our research that people find themselves at food banks. Uh, firstly, because social security is insufficient. But underneath that, somebody can sometimes weather 
that insufficiency of social security, where the informal network that supports them is sufficient to hold them. So partly that is being able to go around your mum's for tea at the end of the month when your money's running short. And so not being able to do that because your mum maybe is struggling to cover her bills at the end of the month means you've not got that informal support. But it's, it's more than just informal support to provide food. It's that informal support that holds us, that helps us keep going, that helps us problem solve in, in dark moments, that helps us find other ways through. We're, we're, we're built to be people in community. And when that's absent, when that, that breaks down, often caused by poverty, we, we really struggle to get by. What do you think about the idea that people need to toughen up? I am like blown away by the resilience, the, the things people have overcome before they arrive at Food Bank, the things people endure to just keep things going, just keep their head above water. People are tough. I've seen people be tough, but then I've also seen our volunteers, like when everyone else is being told, get indoors, bolt the doors, <laughs> stay away. Our volunteers were going out and a lot of our volunteers were older you should have seen the fisticuffs where you're saying you got you got a shield. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> we want to keep coming out. That that when people were stepping back to protect themselves and their families and their loved ones, like our volunteers were stepping forward. And I didn't think our network would be able to keep going actually during the pandemic when food wasn't available and volunteers were going to struggle because of the age demographic of some of our volunteers. I was thinking this is and there's no way our food bank volunteers were going to let that happen. They literally were keeping going. I think people are incredibly tough. Mm. Um, but I think we we need to recognise that we're all human beings and there's only so much anyone can bear without having somebody to help bear that load with us. Like that solidarity, that just standing alongside someone and saying, this is wrong. It's wrong. That 62% of people coming to food banks have a disability. That recognition of injustice, that stating of injustice to one another, mm. and can really bolster people. But I, 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 I find people extraordinarily strong. Why do you think this this wrong has been allowed to happen, and and where do you kind of place that? You know, where, where do you place? yeah just just, just is, it, is it the public is it the the government I mean who he's kind of is it, is it passive is it someone actively doing something I the, the reason I think sometimes it's helpful to reflect on these things is so as we can undo it and move forward so I I don't think anyone intended to see an increase in the number of people coming to food banks I think people have made decisions the best decisions they thought they could make in a given situation and um, however there is no question that we as citizens of this country as voters as uh, as the the electorate have allowed this to happen and that's in part because we stepped away from compassion potentially and thought about protecting our public purse and we've got caught up we got caught up for a long time in stories around whether people had the right to be supported or not be supported and there was a there was a narrative that was allowed to take hold of us as a society 
Um, and I think we've we've moved beyond that now, actually. So we've seen a shift in public attitudes. So public attitudes before were that social security was too too generous. And then we need to do something about that. Whereas public attitudes have shifted the other way now, where we, we think social security isn't generous enough. And so there's something about recognizing that journey we've been on and what's actually materially changed in that in that time. But we get the government. The, our government acts in in line with what we allow them to do, I think. And we've seen extraordinary things over, like Marcus Rashford, just been extraordinary and the public awareness he raised around free school meals. And once we realised what was going on, the public outcry was huge and the government changed. So we've seen the government change in response to public attitudes. We just need to use our voices more. Sometimes we don't think our voices have power but I think we've seen repeatedly during the pandemic that actually when we speak out on stuff things do change I, I I take responsibility as a citizen for 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 the situation but I think we collectively take responsibility for we have to take collective responsibility for how we're caring for those in our society who are on the lowest income who are struggling the most we we should be judged by that um, and we should reflect on what we need to do differently. After we lost the football, I, I remember seeing on, on Twitter people posting about um, Rashford and saying things like, you know, the, the mural that was made for him and people posting messages of, of thanks for, for the, the work he has done for food banks. And people were saying, you know, this is what it really means for football to come home and like the... The idea that this is what home is and, and what the public, the British people want home to be, it was really reassuring to me, actually. I am one of the, the most amazing points of the World Cup for me was when Marcus was warming up to come on in the last match, and my youngest went, Mum, Mum, that's our man, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> that's the man that helps with your work. <laughs> I like just like. He's your colleague. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I was like, but I just thought that, that Marcus Rashford's an extraordinary man. He's done an extraordinary thing for, for our organisation, but for our country, I think, in raising the issues he has. And uh, I, I thought it was really remarkable that he was known, known for that, first and foremost, by, by my son. Yeah, that's really lovely. Um, well, before I ask other people if they have questions, I've got um, two uh, notes here from people who've been to food banks. And um, when, when they go, they um, I don't know if this is in most food banks or what, but um, these people were giving slips of paper to ask why they had been to the food bank. And um, I kind of just want to take um, the statistics we talked about and, you know, the, the whole kind of coming togetherness and isolationness that, that we're talking about and just kind of put two real people and, the, and their voices at the center of it. So one person said, um, I came to the food bank today because changes in my circumstances caused ben cause benefit cuts. My son became 18. I have three other children, youngest age two, and my partner died suddenly a month ago. And it's, it's that kind of crisis. Like you, you can't control 
you know, that led this this person to the food bank. And then the other one is I came to the food bank today because my benefits were stopped after coming out of hospital. I have had to reapply for benefits. I didn't receive the letter informing me my benefits were stopping as it was sent to the wrong address. I won't get any money for six weeks. I was in hospital having a tumour removed. So my immune system is very low. I now have a chest infection and not having any food to eat is affecting my health. And it's, it's just that kind of level of crisis that people get to when they go to the food bank. It's not simply that they just don't want to go to work. I mean, they, they can't. Nobody, nobody wants to come to a food bank. That's, that's the bottom line. That's not, not my experience of anyone I've ever met coming mm -hmm. to a food bank. It's the last place anyone wants to be and I hear stories similar to those that you just told time and time again that's got to change we've got to end this situation yeah and again to emphasize you know it's it's not about the food really I mean this one person is grieving another person is very ill you know these are the like the main problems in their lives and everything around that you know, falls, falls apart and unravels for them. And where is the support? So um, does anyone have any comments they'd like to make or any thoughts or experiences? I think we missed one question in the chat, actually, which I'll, I'll read all people, people think. And it's from Julie. And she says, can you say how much the supermarkets support food banks? And do you feel that they help equally or do some help much more? Um, we're really extraordinarily grateful to all of the supermarkets, the major supermarkets um, who step in and support both locally and kind of UK wide um, food banks. So whether that's through hosting collections for um, uh, food, food drives once or twice a year or having permanent collections in their store um, or as many did during the pandemic making available food um, to local food banks um, uh, to, to help them get access to food when food was sparse on, on the shelves. There was there's just been extraordinary response and um, I was just blown away by the phone calls I got in the first week of the pandemic from um, particularly from, from Tesco and Asda in terms of their response in stepping up to ask what they could do and how they could help us. And we have major partnerships with, with both of those organisations, but also with all of the supermarkets. They all called and said, what can we do um, to help? So we're very grateful to them, but we long for a day when people are able to go into their stores and buy food for themselves. Yeah. But what would be like the, the one myth that you would just love to eliminate about poverty well there's, there's a few <laughs> I'm like, the, the struggle here is which one <laughs> um, give us your top five and then I, that's going to turn into top ten a big, one, a big one and a and slightly smaller one so the, the big one is um we need to stop thinking of poverty as an individual issue and start thinking of it as structural when 64% of people coming to food banks have a disability, when you're twice as likely to be in a food bank if you're a single parent than if you're not, 
um, when you are much more likely to be at a food bank if you have a, a larger family than, than not. There are some structural issues. You are much more likely to uh, have to access a food bank if you're Black, Asian or minority ethnic than if you're white. There are key structural issues that are going on that are making our country unequal. The inequity is so closely linked to the experience of, of poverty. And we spend a lot of time talking about individual responsibility and individual choices. And it distracts us from the massive reality of the problem over here, which is structural. That would be my big one. My second one, which is quite big too, but um, my experience of um, people coming to food banks and people on low incomes is they know where every single penny they received is going to because they're having to juggle on such an extraordinary tight budget and yet very often people want to talk to me about budgeting education for people who are coming to food banks and that feels again like a distraction from the real problem. You can only budget your money when there's enough of it. Otherwise, all you're doing is moving things around to try and stop the plates from falling. Mm -hmm. They would be my two. Yeah, and it's, it's that bu budgeting, I, I suppose, why we talk about things like food poverty, clothes poverty, and period poverty, and fuel poverty. I mean, these, these are the terms people talk now in the media and it's because people have to pick like do I eat or do I fuel my house do I buy new shoes or do I you know buy my kid lunch for the week but also I think it is quite interesting how we fragmented it up and is that quite confusing to people do you think like what do you think about people talking about food poverty or fuel poverty as opposed to poverty so it I, I i wouldn't because i think it becomes a distraction again yeah if we only look at this type of poverty then we can ignore all the others if somebody is um supporting their household with just 50 pounds a week after rent <laughs> they're experiencing poverty in fact they are experiencing destitution and that affects all of the essentials mm. uh, and so and um, that's 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 poverty, not any particular brand or shape or size of it. It's just the lived experience of somebody um, experiencing that level of income. So uh, I, I think it's important to call out the problem, not the symptoms. And the problem is insufficient income. The symptoms are not being able to afford food, personal hygiene items, accommodation, heating, electricity. Um, but that's symptoms, not the problem. I, I really agree with that. And um, the, the fragmenting, I wonder if it's a kind of squeamishness as well to acknowledge that there is a systematic problem and to try and make it individual, both to individual to, to the individual people, but individual to individual problems that individual people have. <laughs> we have a couple of questions in the chat. So Morag says, or it's more of a comment, Nobody thinks that they will ever need to go to a food bank or be homeless, but we're all just one or two pay slips away. It can happen to any of us. Do you have any thoughts on that? Thank you for that, Morag. And I think a, a lot of people feel that way. And um, I hear it most commonly from somebody coming into a food bank 
who'll say, I just never thought I would be here. So I think that that is a felt experience of, of, of most people who come into food banks. They're shocked that they're, they're there. However, the reality is the statistics show us it is not likely to happen to everyone. There are particular groups of people who it's much, much more likely to happen to. So it could technically happen to lots of people, but it would have to be an extraordinary set of circumstances. So we know, as I've said already, somebody who has a disability, somebody who is a single parent, and um, somebody who has a family with multiple children, if, if somebody is uh, black or um, Asian or minority ethnic, there are things that make it much more likely, but also that informal support network. So absolutely what we've seen during the pandemic is, people losing their jobs, uh, lots of people losing their jobs, lots of people moving on to furlough. Not all of those people find themselves in food banks. There are other factors at play and it's that lack of informal support, that insufficiency of social security to support people who, um, who, who for example, have a disability or who are single parents. So there are things structurally that make it even more likely that someone will come to a food bank but certainly it's the felt experience of everyone in a food bank that they never believed they would be there they never saw this situation arising it's, it's weirdly hopeful in a way that what you just said about how it is more likely to affect some people than others because it does mean that we can do something to make it better for those group of, of people, which is specific and tailored for them. You know, it's not a kind of, a oh, whoopsie daisy, you lost your job. This is very tragic. It, it can just sort of happen. Um, the, these are things that are predictable for, for groups that have specific vulnerabilities and we can look at those things. Um, so Viv asks, um, do you think food banks are a better solution than food vouchers for clients? And if so, why? It's a great question. I think cash is best. <laughs> so I think <laughs> a cash first approach is best. And, and, and I say that, but I, I really mean it. So local welfare assistance schemes, if somebody has had an income shock, so whether the period of ill health, the loss of a, a contract before being able to get another one, and, what, and having an income shock, I'd want, as well as our social security system, for our local authorities to be thinking, actually, how do we get emergency cash to that person to tide them over this period of time so that a short-term crisis doesn't turn into a long-term hardship? So always cash first would be my preference. So we've, we, we, we need a significant investment in our local welfare assistance schemes in Scotland, in, in, in England. It's it, very far behind the levels available in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. Uh, and so we, we, we should have a situation where if somebody's in a crisis, there's a cash grant available to them locally. I, I, I think people having the dignity to be able to go and shop in a supermarket would be better. So a food voucher is one way of enabling that. Um, food banks are are fueled by donated food that is available to, to provide. So the cost point for a food bank being able to provide donated food is much lower than being able to provide food vouchers or cash. So we, we think nobody should have to come to a food bank. <laughs> so anything that allows people to, to have choice and dignity is better. But for me, that ultimate choice and dignity comes with having enough money. 
Well, what do you think to like the real cynics who, who say we shouldn't just be giving people money and we need to be careful not to encourage people to not work? I, I, I well, first of all, I would say it's not it's not working. So our benefit system is is uh, extremely ungenerous at the moment. And what what I find is if somebody is subsisting, so struggling to put food on the table, the chances of them being able to consider accessing the workplace to do job searching, to um, be able to prepare themselves mentally for an interview in that context, that's not that those are not the ideal circumstances for somebody to to be moving into work. So the the generosity of the system at the moment is is actually working against enabling people to get back to work or being able to work i would say because people are having to focus on surviving within within that context i i think sometimes people can't work <laughs> sometimes they can't <laughs> so it could be because they've just had a tumor removed and they have come out of hospital because it could be because they have a disability that prevents them from working sometimes or all the time could be because they have caring responsibilities for somebody who has a disability or somebody who is unable to work or look after themselves sometimes people can't work (laughs) and what are we saying in that situation how do we support people then other times people desperately want to work but there aren't jobs available sometimes people are working multiple jobs on zero hours contract and they've paid for their childcare up front because you have to pay for your childcare up front and then the contract gets removed and your shift's gone and sometimes people are desperate to work they've set up their circumstances so as they can work by getting their kids looked after and then they don't get a shift sometimes we need to that's why we have a social security system that's the very circumstances in which our social security system was set up we expect if we become unwell and if we have to care for somebody in our family, if we cannot work, we expect our social security system to hold us out of destitution. That's the whole premise of the system. That's what we look to that system to do for us. And what we need to not do is stand by when it's not doing that for others as well. I think it's quite an odd way to look at work as well, as if work is something people only do if they're made in made to be very uncomfortable for most people work is actually very life affirming and if you don't work that's that's a lot of meaning and purpose and routine and socializing and just getting out that that just goes from your life and what what does that sort of imply about the jobs that we think people should do as well I kind of I kind of think that that kind of thinking allows for jobs where workers aren't looked after very well no I I agree it shouldn't be just any job it should be a job that we're suited to we're able to hold on to we're able to do really well but I I agree that if we can work most people want to work that's that's the ideal because we know that the level of income you get from work is much much higher than that that you get from social security so everyone everyone would want to be in that situation but the reality is some of us can't work either now or ever and how are we caring for for each other in that situation if anyone has any questions you can use a little emoji to get our attention or use the chat and i'll 
um, switch and, and let you say something, but otherwise I'll um, carry on a, a little bit. Um, but I think we should draw it to a close soon because we've been here an hour. But all, all the kind of um, talk about social security, I guess it makes, makes you have to ask, you know, what is a society? What is a society for? I mean, that really is like the big question underpinning this, isn't it? is something around what is our social contract with one another but yeah definitely uh, and we saw the best of our response to that question during covid like no one left behind nobody left unable to access food we we mobilized extraordinarily we we need to we need to hold on to that i worry come october the cut to our social security the cut to universal credit i think Will be quite symbolic if we allow it to, to go ahead thus far and no further. We did actually carry on talking a little bit and some people turned their microphones on and shared their thoughts and experiences too but listening back I wanted to end the podcast there because I think that's such a poignant note to end on and I didn't want to dilute it with the rest of our chat um, what is going to happen to our benefits will hugely affect how people are able to live and get food and cope or not cope with what life throws at them. I think there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful, even though bad things are happening. Um, as Emma says, poverty is structural and we can change these structures and make a real difference. I'd love to know what you think, so you can contact me at the Jam Packed Pod on Twitter, and you can find the website at thejampackedpod.com, and you can email me at thejampacked at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and here is a preview of the next episode. The big ticket issue was for me, how do we mobilise people in their everyday lives to see that collectively they have the power to do things differently? How do we engage with our neighbours, people that we'll never meet as well? How do we tell a story of hope? And that has to be about actions, not words. Because ironically, although words are what can inspire us, it's actions that nail that, that give us traction, that show us as a community of any order, whether it's, you know, a street, a village, a town, a burn a city, a country, it doesn't matter, that collectively the stuff that we can do that will help us live well and prosper in a challenging future.